Welcome to Mintel's Little Conversation podcast. Hello and welcome to Mintel's Little Conversation, where our experts bring you fresh ideas and new perspectives on how consumers eat, drink, shop, groom and think. I'm Sam Dover, a senior retail analyst at Mintel, and today we're discussing Britain's departure from the European Union, otherwise known as Brexit. And I am joined by Richard Shepherd, Jack Duckett and Simon Moriarty. So let's get started. Can I ask you all to introduce yourselves and tell me a little bit about your role at Mintel? Hi Sam, my name is Rich Shepherd. I'm a senior financial services analyst here at Mintel. Um, I write across a range of financial services markets uh, and I also help to look after our quarterly economic outlook reports which look at consumer confidence and since the referendum attitudes towards Brexit. Hello, I'm Simon Moriarty. I'm Director of Trends at Intel for the EMEA region. Uh, so I'm responsible for all of the insight and client services uh, that goes around our Trends products. And I'm Jack Duckett. I am Associate Director for Consumer Lifestyles Research at Mintel. Um, I write a series of reports where we look at the attitudes and behaviours of different demographic groups. So I'm going to come to you first, Rich. Without going into too much depth about politics and the economy, there's still obviously an awful lot of uh, uncertainty overhanging us at the minute. And as we're recording this, we don't even know who's going to be prime minister and we really don't know how Brexit is going to play out hard or soft. So without thinking kind of too much in depth about that, how are consumers reacting at the minute? Are we, what's happening? Are we still feeling confident? Are we still willing to spend? So consumer confidence is kind of books all that all that trend about the uncertainty caused by Brexit. Uh, people have really managed to divorce uh, what's happening with the economy as a fallout of that uncertainty and what's actually happening in their everyday lives and in their personal finances. Um, we track three different measures of financial confidence. Uh, we look at what people feel about their household finances right now, how that compares to about a year ago and how confident people are looking for the year ahead. And what's really interesting is that since the turn of this year, all three of those measures have hit the highest points that we've ever seen on record. And that goes back um, over a decade. Um, the reasons for that are, are really quite difficult to, to pin down, but the, the main thing is that people are just looking at what is happening in their daily lives because Brexit is so difficult for them to, to get their head around. As you say, we don't know what Brexit's going to look like. Uh, so, so instead of looking at how Brexit's going to impact them in their everyday life, they're just looking at their personal situation, their job, their wage. Uh, unemployment is at its lowest record since at lowest point since 1974, just 3.8%. And that's really important because most people who want a job have got a job. And also in the last year, uh, real uh, wages uh, have been growing quicker than inflation. So people, it's not great. They're not getting a massive amount of increase in their, in their, in their household income, uh, but they are actually getting more money on a real-term basis uh, than last year. So if, if Brexit wasn't an issue, then we'd probably expect to see these figures be even higher. But as it is, people are choosing to ignore Brexit when considering their personal finances. Great. So, Jack, with that in mind, you've obviously written our recent British Lifestyle Report, which looks at how lots of different sectors are performing. What have you seen? What kind of what categories are doing well in spite of everything that's going on? Yeah. So, I mean, generally, there's really interesting trends across most categories. All categories saw growth. Um, all of our categories saw growth across 2017-18, with the exception of household care, which is 
<laughs> nothing to do with Brexit. That's quite a, a unique form of price promotions and price activity. But I think there were two that I think were really interesting that stood out that sort of feed on from, from demographic trends. The first most interesting was a huge growth in the home and gardens market. Um, homeware is really benefiting from the fact that millennials have finally started to leave their parents' homes, move into spaces of their own. And they're, they're splurging on decorative items that will make their homes um, pleasant to live in, even if they're rented or their homes they own, they want to make these uh, a really nice livable space. And in many ways, they want to make them suitable for Instagram, just the way they've made the rest of their lifestyles Instagrammable. So the home's the next target. And the other one I find really interesting is alcoholic drinks. Um, alcoholic drinks has been one where we've, we hear a lot of questions. People are supposed to be cutting down the amount of alcohol they drink, with these huge trends for moderation, alcohol lessening. So how are alcoholic market doing so well? Well, the reality is there's a huge premiumization trend in this category where people are cutting back the amount or the quantity. Yes, there's some, uh, as actually flat volume sales. So people aren't cutting out quite as much as they suggest they are. But in terms of value sales, people are spending more on more expensive drinks. The idea being that if I'm going to be drinking fewer drinks, I may as well splurge on the more expensive products. Product. Um, and that tallies up to mean that value sales in this sector are growing really, really well. So there's, there's those sort of demographic shifts that continue to support growth across a number of sectors. Interesting. Um, but I, I can't help but as I'm listening to this, I kind of get the sense that maybe consumers are just burying their head in the sand a little bit. So correct me if I'm wrong, there's obviously a real threat that things could go south post-Brexit and we're going to have less money to spend. And unlike on other recessions, we've not had the same kind of pre-recession boom. What are your thoughts on this, Rich? Are consumers prepared for what's going to happen or what could happen? I suppose there's two ways of answering that. I mean, one, people aren't prepared. Uh, th there's no real way that they can be because th th we, we still don't know what's going to happen. Um, comparing it to previous recessions is, is kind of the obvious thing to do because if things go south, we know what that's looked like in the past. But you're completely right that this isn't like the, uh, like the, the last recession, for example. It's not a case of, a case of uh, boom and bust economics it's a much more slower moving thing. It's something that has happened as a, as a obviously as a fallout of a political event. Um, and we, and we really still don't know what it's going to look like. So I think it would be unfair to say that people are burying their heads in the sand um, to kind of take that analogy further. If they took their heads out of the sand, there's still not really much for them to look at. Um, so it's difficult for people to look ahead with any kind of certainty or, or, or rely on anything that they can see happening. Um, what we have seen, though, is that people are tending to, to move away from longer term plans, uh, particularly in the credit market. Um, so over the last two years, we've seen uh, the growth rates for unsecured credit really fall down. And the, and the big category where that's happened is the non-credit card segment of consumer credit. And what that's mainly compiled of is personal loans and, and car finance, so longer term, more considered structured lending. Uh, in November 2016, that was at its highest point, uh, around 12% annual growth. And since then, it's really dropped down. And the latest figures from the Bank of England show actually it's fallen down to about 6%. So while there is still growth in uh, unsecured credit, people are going to it uh, less than, than they were in, in the last couple of years. And, and it's slowing down that market. But in terms of, of Brexit and people's attitudes towards it, there's two ways of thinking about it. And one is the one in the media where people are split into two camps and one is uh, Uber Remainers and they just want to stay in the European Union. And then there's the other group, which are the Uber, Uber Brexiteers. What that misses is the, the big group in the middle, 
and they're the people who get who get lost in that uh, that type of discussion. But when we look at our data, when we track people's attitudes towards Brexit, there's a big bunch of people in the middle who don't think that Brexit's going to affect a lot of economic factors. Uh, having said that, people are on the on the on the main more negative than they are positive about what they think Brexit will do to uh, the British economy and their own personal finances. But since the um, March deadline for leaving the European Union was extended the pressure that that gave was has, re, has been released and we've seen that in an upturn in sentiment towards brexit and people are actually now more positive about the the impact of brexit than they have been since january 2017 interesting simon you got any thoughts i, I, I agree with richard it's not about people burying their heads in the sands in the sense of trying to ignore it and hope it goes away or trying to you know uh, just looking after themselves and imagining that everything will be fine because the idea of preparing for the worst has been around for a lot longer than Brexit. So people in today's climate and recent years of economic uncertainty and geopolitical uncertainty globally, that's impacted on British consumers, um, often subconsciously. Um, and we obviously talk a lot about local issues, domestic issues, but there's been a global shift in consumer attitudes to the future. And uh, there has been a bigger sort of focus on the individual not in a in a negative way not in a kind of selfish way but people are looking to themselves and looking at what they can get out of life and how they need to behave so i think they're not burying their heads in the sand but they are just focusing on what they need to do day to day and that was the case before brexit um, so I'm just thinking about changes in spending habits. So I think that this doesn't always go the way we think it's going to in a recession. So a couple of examples to pull from would be fashion and beauty. So, you know, during previous recessions, we, what we've seen is actually, yes, the value end of the market does well as we'd kind of expect. Um, but on top of that, the higher end of the market also can do quite well too so people buying into premium fashion for longevity and prestige beauty because it's a nice affordable treat if we do hit hard times this time around do we think kind of similar trends are going to come out how do you think spending habits are going to change jack yeah i mean there's there's quite it's quite tricky i wouldn't wouldn't have wanted to have predicted which categories exactly would have done well in the in 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 the last recession i think what's interesting this time when we talk about preparedness and and habit changing is that last time to use Richard's explanation, was a traditional boom and bust recession, albeit it was uh, explained by a banking crisis, but it, it, it did everything that, that you'd expect. We went from a very strong financial situation to a, to a very a very weak one. And so with that came this surge in savvy shopping habits, price promotion hunting, a real awareness of, uh, of looking for deals and making sure people got the best out of what's available. Um, sometimes that manifests itself, as you said, for getting product, products that will offer better, better longevity, better quality that's, that'll last. Sometimes that was about simply spending the very least in the category. People developed a real strong sense of what real value was. Now, the difference here is that due to the fact we've had a very slow recovery since the last recession, no one has let go of any of those habits. We are not in a boom to have a bust. People are being very savvy, very careful with their spending. And so we can't see that rapid change, that sudden change, that shift in behaviors we've seen before. That is not possible any longer. People can only hone what they've already created. So I think we see this in the British Lifestyles data. We see that there's a, a gradual and gentle increase in the number of people who are price you know, hunting for price promotions, using couponing and discounting. But generally speaking, these are already very, very well-trod trod habits that people are embracing all the time. So 
at that point, people might get a bit lost. You might start to see that people are shoved into spending more because there is no way around it this time. I think that could create a slightly, <laughs> slightly less healthy environment in terms of consumer spending. That, you know, where there was a gain to be had from price promotion hunting and from shopping around before, well, if you're already doing that, there's not a lot of fun in finding new habits in a, in a, a slightly shoddy economic sector. So that, that could be really interesting. But I do, I do think that people always l live for a treat. And so it's always going to be those categories that can offer something slightly special that people always push themselves to go for. And that's just the way people think. And pets, because people always look after their pets no matter what, and certainly in Britain anyway. Dogs and horses, anyway. And I'd add on to that as well, and maybe this is a question for Jack. Um, we've seen, a, as you said, the growth of discount hunting around for bargains, coupons, all of that has been the norm for a long time for a lot of people. The next generation that's coming through, those consumers who have grown up in a, in a society that is kind of looking at value and, and they're used to their families and their parents shopping around using things like coupons and discount codes, they're going to be the ones that are turning into adults immediately after whatever happens with the, the, the move away or the remain. Um, does that mean that brands will have to offer something new? Because these consumers, these younger consumers, A, they might not be as affluent anyway because they're just starting out in their careers, but also they've come from a background of coupons and discounts and looking for value. So in order to attract their spend, does it have, there might have to be something different, you know, moving away from the traditional playfulness of, of discounting or, or value that you talked about. Yeah, I mean, the current young generation are definitely uh... – more experienced seasoned lookers for things like deals and if you compare them to say, the generation above millennials millennials have had to find their own discount habits they are their sudden shock of being the generation that emerged at the time of the financial downturn um generation z if you to enable the generation just below that are undoubtedly uh savvier shoppers in their own right they have grown up seeing this around them i think they're still young they are still much more impressionable than the than the older shoppers so they will still be pulled in by by bigger ticket claims i wouldn't necessarily attribute that to being a, an easily misled generation that's just a youth thing they bind claims a lot more easily and they're still very guided by big by brands you know absolutely they are more understanding of the own label uh, independent brand dynamic that you didn't see in the previous generation they, they definitely get that but i think the key is is that you know Big campaigns that play on the things that matter to them will still will still do well. If that's about equality, if that's about diversity, if that's about the environment, these big ticket issues for this group that they they really believe in. I think if brands can get behind those, then that does sort of spell out beyond uh, the issues of, of price. Absolutely. Um, so I'm trying to think of this from more of a trends perspective. So there's things that we can't that we do care about, and there's things that we're obviously willing to spend on at the minute. Um, I know that that's everything that Simon could talk to me about. Um, what trends do you think are going to have longevity going forward? What things are people still going to care about if we do hit hard times? Um, they're going to, I don't think we'll see a massive shift in priorities changing. Um, on the day-to-day, -day, it depends what happens economically. There will be perhaps um, the need to reprioritize spending habits on essentials and things like that. Um, kind of, you know, that's a more extreme uh, case. In terms of what people care about, it will be the same. It's the stuff that they have an emotional connection to. Um, so brands that have those emotional connections with consumers, if they are able to maintain those, they're going to continue to do well, uh, be in a stronger position. Um, we're looking, going back to the point I made about individuality, that's a trend that is still 
emerging and taking shape in lots of different ways. Um, so how that plays out will be interesting because people still care about family and friends and want to kind of have those connections. Um, and through social media, they continue to build those. But it's also about us as individuals understanding what we want out of life. So I think we'll see people planning ahead more, doing more research into things like education, doing more research into things like new skills that they can learn in their own time. But they'll also be looking for support from brands and from organizations to facilitate those skills. Um, a lot of consumers are, are looking for experiential. That's going to move um, at the moment. It's very much focused on travel, um, food service, and retail. I think it's going to become much more important across every category um, because it's something that people will come to see as the norm and expect experiential transactions, experiential um, interactions with brands across every walk of life is a, it's a way for brands to maintain those customers and stand out, but also it's going to become expected. I think again, in, in this idea of burying our heads in the sand and having a gloomy future experiential is actually in a good place to, to kind of break through some of that gloom um, and give people something different to, to engage with. Interesting. Do you think, I think the argument with stuff like experiential though is, are people, do you think people are willing to pay a premium for it? Do you think people are still going to be willing to pay a premium for it if they are squeezed, if they're pinched and they haven't got as much money to spend? No, they won't. Um, uh, I don't think people are willing to pay a premium for experiential at the moment. I think it's becoming something that's expected across, you know, mass market transactions. Um, it varies from category to category, and there will be people that will continue to pay a premium to get that special experience, that unique experience, um, and make them feel like they're part of an exclusive club. But across kind of the mainstream, I think experiential will become mass market and it will be expected. It doesn't have to be anything flashy or costly for the brands necessarily. It's just about refocusing the interaction with customers, um, adding you know, small touches of something different, whether it's playfulness, whether it's utilizing artificial intelligence to make the transaction more seamless, whether it's going back the other direction and utilizing in-house experts in the transaction to make it um, more of a human-to-human -human contact. Um, so, there will be extremes where people want to pay more for these, um, but I think it will become much more mainstream and much more common. Yeah, so I think obviously with that, I guess what we're going to see is just more and more pressure on brands, really, just to keep doing more and more. And I think that kind of goes a bit hand in hand with the kind of sustainability issue as well. It's obviously one of the biggest talking points for a lot of businesses, but the argument always continues to remain are people actually willing to pay that much of a premium for it and i think we're starting to see that people are but maybe if we are a bit kind of hit a bit harder times we might not um we not might, might not be willing to kind of continue paying a premium for that so do we just think there's going to be more and more pressure on brands and companies going forward to just continue kind of doing these things to so continue kind of giving their customers better experiences continue investing in sustainability and i guess that just means that pressure is going to be on them as opposed to consumers yeah, there is. Um, but at the same time, they're already under pressure to do that because of changes in uh, the retail landscape in terms of how we in engage with brands through social media, through online channels. Brands are already experiencing massive pressures from because of the likes of Amazon. Um, there's, there needs to be ways for them to stand out and drive people into their stores or into their locations, um, drive them to use their products in ways that make them a valid competitor for cheaper online versions. Um, you know, we've seen it in the entertainment industry uh, with the rise of streaming. How has that impacted on people's viewing habits, traditional TV viewing, but also on things like cinema visits. And it, it does come in waves. Um, you know, cinema box office is higher than it's ever been. So again, experiential is massive because it's not just 
a brand doing something that's experiential for the individual customer. It's about people also wanting to share experiences. And that's where sustainability will also continue to play a part because people want to form communities where they have a common goal, a common set of ethics. Um, so the pressure is on brands to maintain that. There is legislative reasons why they have to maintain kind of ethical behavior anyway. But people will want to kind of get behind those causes and see brands doing things that are positive and beneficial for the wider communities that they're part of. So last question, I'm going to open this out to everybody, is big question. If you had one piece of advice for brands, retailers, companies in the face of Brexit, looming how can brands protect themselves what can they do um so i guess from from my perspective from a retail perspective what i think is it's going to become more and more important to understand the kind of shopping journey that people go on so it's no longer enough to kind of know what your customers want to buy from you you have to understand the kind of process they go through before they buy those products with you so really understanding that kind of journey which kind of continues to evolve and keep responding to that what do you guys think what's from your very unique perspectives what do you all think brands should be doing or could do to protect themselves against the threat of brexit I think it's quite potentially a, a you know a boring and staid answer, but from the financial services point of view, I think that really brands need to be careful just to keep calm. Um, when things change, they'll they'll change potentially quite quickly. But the big banks in particular have such a big bearing on how the rest of the economy works because they have such a big bearing on consumer confidence that I think it's really important that they're seen to make a commitment to British consumers uh, and to 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 convince people that the products and services that they are used to using, the products and services that they need are still going to be there post-Brexit. Um, you can start to see that already in the types of marketing that, that certain banks are putting through. Um, HSBC has gone big on the what, what appears to be quite a strong, um, well, it's certainly an internationalist uh, perspective of what Britain is with their recent campaign, but it can be read certainly as one for the remainers, shall we say. Um but then you have other you have other campaigns such as you know Lloyds Bank making a big play on their heritage as a as a British brand and and how they've always been there for British consumers. Uh, going forward, I think that's going to be the key. As I say, it's just about keeping calm, making sure that consumers are as reassured as possible, um, and that goes for personal. Uh, banking customers and also I think pretty more so small business customers making sure that banks are really there for their small business customers because that, that's the area where those customers could very quickly find themselves uh, hitting issues with uh, you know goods coming in uh, getting hold of materials making payments all that sort of stuff uh, so making sure that any um, changes are responded to quickly and that those messages are passed on to consumers to reassure them and make sure that things can continue uh, as as normal, I would suggest that um, you know we've had a lot of chat about value, price, and and the the, the reality of people wanting lower costs in, in times of hardship. I think that's that's undoubtedly true, and I, I won't debate that. But what I would suggest is very important that, that brands and businesses do have a clear identity that that goes beyond just being cost based. Um, we saw endlessly over the last five, ten years that businesses focused on just offering the very lowest cost. Yeah, they'll have their boom moments, but they'll ultimately tend to fizzle out. You might bring up here how the discount sector, well, surely what does that mean for that sector? Well, that's very different. Certainly the likes of Lidl and Aldi, they do have an identity beyond just having a very, very much lower cost pr price. They brought in a whole new shopping experience for us in the UK. Their offering was about simple shopping. It was about minimizing the the overflow that came from the, the, those enormous supermarkets from the big four over that, the, the ten years preceding. 
they, they gave us a whole new way of shopping. And so, in fact, yes, the, the price was a, a really core cool driver into those shops, but it was the simplicity of the shopping offering that was actually core to their identity. These mid-sized shops, this minimal uh, range within the shop that meant you had to choose really without being divided by about 15 types of of our apple or orange. That's what really gave those retailers their identity. I think, you know, provided that it's a clear identity and provided that you can you can explain your costs and be clear on that, that's a really strong way of just getting away from this fight to the bottom that we saw so many of our, certainly our supermarkets take part in, in, in the last eight years. And what happened there, we ended up with very, very dangerous inflation rates, a, a, a cost of food that was totally unsustainable and a very tricky way back out of it afterwards. So I think, you know, in terms of, of what businesses can do, I, would, I think it's being clear about what you are as a brand, where you stand and why you, you are that way, I think is, is really helpful for engaging with the consumer. Yeah, to agree with both of those approaches, I think I was thinking along similar lines that <clears throat> I think it's really important that brands continue understanding their consumers, having conversations with those consumers, not just to reassure them about what might happen in, in the event of leaving or remaining or talking to them about the, their own brand identity and, and cost of products, but having deeper emotional conversations with consumers, making them feel like they're part of the brand making them feel like they're part of the journey, whether it's product development, whether it's marketing, whatever it is, get people involved, create those communities because that will keep longer term, that will um, kind of cement brands, help them do well over a period of years um, and engaging with those communities on a, you know, a real and transparent and genuine level. Um, and also not jumping on bandwagons, I think is important. Um, this kind of ties into Rich's point about staying calm. We've seen already, um, going back to the ethical side, you know, don't just ditch plastic because the media is saying that plastic is bad. Um, they has to be, be able to understand all levels of what consumer uh, consumer expectation is. Obviously, there are things that can be changed, but it's also about consumer behavior being supported and, and p people, the customers themselves, being supported through changes. Oh, well, thanks, guys. And on that note, I think we should wrap up as that's all we've got time for today. To learn more about Mintel and, and the thing, topics that we've discussed today, please head to Mintel.com and be sure to subscribe to Little Conversation wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.